Now, would you follow as I read that which is inspired, inerrant, infallible, the very mind of God is black words on a white page. Ephesians chapter 5, at verse 1, I'll read through verse 14. Here we go. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure... Or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. But instead, expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light... It becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that endures forever. Now, guys, um, uh, let me start off this way. Um, I would encourage you, I would advise you, don't close your Bibles. Uh, keep them open. <laughs> keep them right there where you can see them. Because a lot of what we're going to have to talk about is just right there, smack dab in the text. And I, and I want you to see it. Gang, um, the, the themes of chapter 4 have, have spilled over into chapter 5. Um, these two chapters, 4 and 5, make this, this stirring summons for us to live lives that are worthy of the calling by which we have been called. That's what he says in verse 1 of chapter 4. In chapter 5, he uses different language, but the essence is the same. He says, be imitators of God. Uh, we are supposed to mimic God. And then you'll, you'll notice in verse 3, he says, as is proper. Proper. 
among saints, as is fitting. There, there are certain things that are just not proper. There are things that are just not fitting concerning God's people, concerning us. There are things that are fitting and there are things that are not fitting. There are things that are appropriate, there are things that are inappropriate. And so we're supposed to walk in, in a way where, where we are seeking to imitate the God who loved us in Christ Jesus. That's what he says in the text. Now, guys, what we find here, and, and really in the next the, the verses throughout this chapter, is, a, is really just a it's, a, it's a way of defining the whole issue of sanctification. And, and here's what sanctification, that is this growing in grace thing. This is what it is. This is what it amounts to. That there is to be an integration a combination of Christian experience, that is, who I am in Christ, a combination with my Christian experience, with Christian theology, that is, what I believe, and thirdly, Christian ethics, how I behave. Being, thought, and acting or doing, all of those things belong together. They're supposed to be found together. Because who we are governs how we think, and how we think determines how we live, how we act, how we behave. Guys, Christians are not just people who believe certain things. It's it's certainly included. But it's not just that Christians believe in a certain way. This section of the book of Ephesians is an appeal for conduct, for behavior. It opens by saying, imitate God. And then it goes on to say, or answer the question, okay, well, if I'm supposed to imitate God... (laughs) How am I supposed to do that? What what would be a legitimate imitation of God? Well, he uses the term walk. Uh, It's a metaphor. He mentions it in verse 2. He mentions it in verse 8. He mentions it in verse 15. That is, that there is a walk. A certain kind of walk. That is fitting. It is appropriate. That's proper. He calls it a, a walk of love. Guys, we sing a song around here, which is one of my favorites. It's um, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Isaac Watts. And the last line of that, that, um, that hymn goes like this. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands. Demands my life, my soul, my all. In view of love like this, the only fitting and appropriate response is a walk. It's a lifestyle. 
that is reflective of the God that has loved us in Christ. Walk in love, verse 2, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now, guys, all of that brings us to an unavoidable lesson. Um, and, And let me see if I can work backwards with you just a bit. If my behavior is unfitting, then apparently what I believe is flawed such that who I am is in question. What we believe affects how we walk. Now, gang, in verse 2, we are reminded in verse 2 that we are loved. We don't walk to get loved. We're loved, and thus we walk. Don't ever reverse those two. Gang, this is, this is not a call to moral reform. Um, as if we were to stand in the pulpit and say, don't drink and drive, or just say no. Gang, the church of Jesus Christ is not primarily a moral agency. She's a regenerating agency. She's a, she's a place where we worship the God who regenerates. But in view of what God has done, we are called to, um, to mimic this God who loved us. Out of love for him, love so amazing, so divine, It demands, demands my life, my soul, my all. It demands a lifestyle that is proper. That's his word, verse 3. As is proper. Now, guys. With all of that in mind, I want you to notice the very clear specific that he begins with in verse 3 as he begins to tell us how to mimic God. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity, covetousness, must not even be named among you. The first specific that Paul gives us in terms of imitating God has to do with our whole attitude about sexual behavior. There's not a whole lot of specifics here, and specifics aren't needed. I can tell you this much. The two Greek words that are used in this section are the words pornia, from which we get our English word pornography. And the, the other word is akatharsia. 
And I can promise you that both of those words cover the whole gamut of illicit sexual behavior. All of it is being denounced here. And he even adds in verse 3, must not even be named among you. Now, Paul, 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 Paul. I mean, you're getting just a bit carried away here, are you not? I mean, uh, surely, surely you can't expect um, uh, that kind of purity in a culture like ours that is so saturated with sex. As if the culture gives you a pass. But, but, but may I remind you this, ladies and gentlemen. This is being written to a church at Ephesus. You remember what Ephesus was? Um, Artemis, Diana, the god of the Ephesians, the goddess of fertility, where the worship service included temple prostitution. It is true, ladies and gentlemen, the J.C. Penney ad is soft porn in our culture. But... It's not, our culture is no more saturated than was the culture to which he writes. The Ephesian culture. No, no, it's not the culture that gives us a pass, ladies and gentlemen. Ours is bad. Oh boy. But it's no better than than Ephesus. He he says something really interesting at the bottom of verse 4. He says, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what? Well, thanksgiving for all of God's gifts, including sex. All of God's gifts are to be subjects of thanks. Whereas what the culture has done is turn it into some kind of self-centered gratification, which is the very opposite of what its intent. Sex inside a God-ordained loving marriage? Thanks. Anywhere else? Self-centered covetousness is Paul's words. Now, I I can tell you, and I think I know why, uh, that our culture absolutely recoils about this subject when the Christian church says what I'm saying. I mean, the, the culture talks about mutually consenting adults and, and victimless crimes and, and Victorian hangups and, and that the church is out of touch. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you tell that to the spouses that I deal with and their kids whose lives have been turned upside down because some wife, some husband listened to the culture and not to God. Tell her that. Tell him that. That the church's views were antiquated. Tell him. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I, I lived through the, the, the culture, the sexual revolution of the 60s. I was in the, the, the heart of it. I was on the college campus in the 60s. And the sexual revolution was supposed to set us free. 
And yet, free we aren't. But scarred we are. Oh no, free we aren't. But diseased we are. Free we aren't. But addicted, enslaved we are. Free we aren't. But demonized we are. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis is this, and I'm telling you, you ought to write this one down. He said, sex ceases to be a demon when it ceases to be a god. And in our culture, it's a god. Now, ladies and gentlemen, apart from all that, Paul closes his little argument in this section on a very sobering note. I want you to see it. It's in verse 5. It's a solemn warning. And we modern, liberated Western Christians, we have to face this. Let me read it to you. Verse 5. For you may be sure of this, That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, gang, notice how he opens, which is a very odd opening for the Apostle Paul. I don't know of another place that he does this, but he opens this way. For you may be sure of this. It's an odd piece of emphasis. It's an emphasis for, of certainty. Maybe we ought to be sure of this, but I'm not so sure we are sure of this. But Paul says, you can be sure of this. And of what are we to be sure? Well, anyone whose habitual conduct is defiled by such sins as mentioned here has no part in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let me, let me just put it bluntly. I, I, anyone who, whose habitual conduct is defiled by such sins is not a Christian. Now, guys, he is not saying that anyone who falls into one of these sins is excluded. Thank God. But if such sins are characteristic of my way of living, if I am persistently, continually, Settling down into this as a lifestyle. I'm out of the kingdom. I'm not a Christian. Now I know what some of you are thinking. There is a subtle danger here at this point. Some of you... uh, 
Some of you would like to stop me and say, no, wait, wait, wait a minute, Dr. Young. I mean, wait just a second. Are, are, are you not preaching law to us? I mean, uh, what about grace? Surely you're forgetting the gospel. The gospel which says or which asks of us only to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Law can't save us. And you seem to be preaching law to us. Well, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, that is a piece of confusion on your part. A confusion that is clarified in the New Testament again and again and again. For instance, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, when Jesus says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Guys, the argument that law has nothing to do with us Christians is a case of the devil appearing as an angel of light. No. Law keeping cannot save us. So God saves the ungodly through faith alone in Christ's finished work. Yes. But when he does that, that is when he saves someone by grace through faith alone, those people that he has saved no longer walk after that same flesh because now the Holy Spirit of God dwells within them. God does not justify someone through faith and then leave them in the same place as where he found them. A justified man has been brought out of a kingdom of darkness and into a kingdom of light. A process has begun. And Ephesians 5.5 is saying that if there is no evidence of this process beginning to unfold in my conduct and in my behavior... Then we have not been justified at all. So tell me, ladies and gentlemen, how do you respond to this text? Verses one through five, but specifically five. Does it concern you? Does it alarm you? Does it make you feel a bit ashamed? If so, you're in the kingdom. Verses like these, ladies and gentlemen, are intended to awaken us, to to convict us, and to drive us to Christ, and to, to drive us to the gospel. Did it do that for you? But there's another possible response. I mean, did, did all this make you uncomfortable? And, and you said to yourself... Well, well, I believe in Jesus, and if I believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter what I do. That, ladies and gentlemen, is known as antinomianism. 
And Jesus says to antinomians, depart from me. I never knew you. The New Testament, again, ladies and gentlemen, I think it's clear as a bell, but here's one that I think is the clearest. It's in 1 John 3, verse 3, where John says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see, if this great work of salvation has been wrought in you by God and his spirit, if you're real, then you long to be pure as he is pure. Grace leaves us obligated to rigorously deal with the sin that has been addressed by Christ. Gang, grace does not say because you've been given some blanket forgiveness, you can live any way you want to. Au contraire. Grace leaves us in the position of dealing rigorously with the sin that remains. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as I close, I want to draw your attention to verses 11 and 12 in the text. And next week, we're going to come back and we're going to fill in the gap that I've left. We're going to start at verse 6 and kind of work forward from verse 6. But I want to close with drawing your attention to verses 11 and 12. And and very frankly, I might have the same closing next week that I'm having this morning. Let me read verses 11 and 12 to you. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Now guys, I want to remind you that this is Paul, a pastor, who is writing to Christians in the Ephesian church at Ephesus, of course. He is addressing this to Christians. Christians who, for whatever the reasons, are taking part in the unfruitful works of darkness. And consequently, are living a secret life under the cover of darkness in sins that are too vile to be even mentioned. And if that is true of you, He issues this advice. Expose them. Drag your secret sins. Drag your life of darkness out into the light. Because the healing is going to take place in the light. That exposure that he's talking about in verse 11 
will be done either by you or by him. And if he does it, it will be done so that that one of his sons and one of his daughters will not continue to throw their lives away living in such a way as to destroy themselves and everyone around them. Guys, are you, um, are you living a secret life? Are you living a lie? Are you so hooked on porn that you can't stop and your marriage is ruined? Are are you drinking way too much, hiding it, or at least think you're hiding it? Are you in contact with someone else, a, a third party, an old flame, by email or text or games or whatever, and, and you know where this is headed, and you hope it does? Oh, my friends. Drag it into the light. Now. Now before it does more damage than it's already done. We, we, want, we want to help you, ladies and gentlemen. The, the, the church staff, I mean. We, we want to help. We don't want to judge you. We don't want to scold you. We don't want to embarrass you. But we're trying, we, we want to we spare you of some of the awful pain that awaits you. Expose them. Hurry. While there's still time. And ladies and gentlemen, I, I say to you, it is the hope of the gospel. that gives us the courage to drag all of our secret sins out from behind all of our denials and to bring them into the light. Guys, it is our our joy and our privilege to preach the gospel in this place. We preach it We sing it. Jimmy Umloff does a great job in trying to make sure that that what we sing is gospel-esque. There's one song that we sing, and we sing it a bit. It was written by Martin Luther, but he 
derived it from Psalm 130. And we may sing it and never have really understood what we or thought about what we were singing, what we were singing. I want you to think about it now. The song goes like this. From depths of woe, I raise to thee a voice of lamentation. Oh, turn a gracious ear to me and hear my supplication. If thou iniquities shouldst mark, our secret sins and misdeeds dark. Oh, who could stand before thee? The point is, ladies and gentlemen, If God kept score of all of our sins, none of us, none of us could stand before him. It's the gospel that says, because of what he's accomplished for us in Christ Jesus, our sin has been dealt with. It is our hope in that gospel that gives us the courage to drag our secret sins and misdeeds dark out into the open. Do it now. Before those secret sins do more damage than they have already done. Father, our sin damages us and it damages everybody around us. Our our wives, our husbands are being damaged because we chose to disobey. We chose to to thumb our noses at, at precepts that we find so clearly taught in your word. And we're the losers. We are Our injuries are self-inflicted. And it is because we believe in a gospel of pure grace 
that we can deal honestly with our sin. So, Father, whatever man, whatever woman who is here, who has a secret life, a secret life that is doing enormous harm, would you show them the beauty of the finished work of Jesus Christ? which grants courage to step out from behind all of our denials and pursue pursue more grace for our time of need. Thank you for the privilege of preaching the gospel and for the urgency and the necessity of preaching the applications of that gospel. We commit ourselves to chasing after the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.